Listening to After the Encore, the music podcast that explores what happens after the music fades, what happens after the encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to Mindy Hebert. Mindy is a Grammy nominated saxophone artist. She's a badass woman in music, which is why she's part of this volume of the podcast, Volume 5, Who Runs the World. In this volume, we are looking at the music industry through the lens of different women in their musical careers. Women that are Grammy nominated, that have paved the way for a lot of these other artists to come through, and some newer up and coming artists who are forging their own paths while also appreciating some of the groundwork laid by artists such as Mindy. Mindy and I get into a fantastic conversation about her life growing up, what it meant for her to be a woman saxophonist coming up in the music industry and where her career has taken her since then. It's a fantastic conversation. I know you're really going to enjoy it. So stick around. My conversation with Mindy will be right up after this. Listening to After the Encore, I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I am here with the fantastically brilliant Mindy A. Bear. Mindy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the show. This is fun. Always I, good to hang with you. I well, thank you. I'm super excited because as you know, for this volume, we're doing badass women in music, and we're taking a look at some fantastic women who have achieved a great deal, such as yourself, as well as women that are just kind of starting on their musical journey and trying to forge along on the paths that women such as yourself have really pioneered. And I'm excited to to dig into your whole career, but I want to start with a Let question. Let me just say, first okay. of all, thank you for doing that. Of course. That's such a, a worthy thing to do. And just look, as a woman who's who's played music and been in the music business for so long, I, I love when people take the time to say, hey, I'm going to do a segment on women who have, you know, carried the torch or, or right. you know, done this. And uh, I just love it that you're doing a, you know, a whole segment on badass women. Very honored to be in that. But thank you for doing it in general. It's of just course. too cool. And, you know, I think it's an interesting point that you bring up because 
I think it's so easy to do different themes like we've done on the show and have women in some, men in some, and, you know, just kind of as the theme goes, you just have whoever. And and it's fine. And you can have a nice balance and you can have some diversity with that as well. But I think there are, there historically has not always been equal weight or equal spotlight given across the board to different artists and different musicians. And so I wanted to make a point to specifically call out badass women in music because while I have had badass women throughout the rest of the volumes, I felt by by narrowing the scope and being intentional and calling it out would draw attention to the fact that, hey, you know what? I don't think we are recognizing the same across the board and we could do a better job as, as, a, as a society, as an industry, as fans, as artists. And so thank you, thank you for, for being on because I, there's a lot of good conversations that are able to be had when we're viewing this discussion through that specific lens. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's awesome. I love it. So let's get started. I want to ground the the episodes like I, like I typically do with one question, which is really the thesis of this entire podcast. And that is, I want to know, Mindy, what does music mean to you? Wow. That is the uh, all encompassing question, isn't it? You start big. You right. start, you know, you start with the forest, uh, not the trees. Come on. Uh, I love that. Music, uh, you know what? Music has been my life, and it has been the thread of, of everything that's happened in my life from, you know, growing up on the road with my dad's band. It was my first memories. I mean, they basically took me, you know, from the the hospital and put me in the band truck, and we were off. <laughs> you know, so I was just listening to music all the time. My grandmother was an opera singer. I was in every school band program. I was such a, a band geek. And now I've gone on to make music as a musician in other people's bands and other people's tours and other people's records and as a solo artist for many years. So, you know, everything I can look back on in my life has the thread of music and the thread of, oh, that song was that year, or I wrote that song when this was going on in my life. So I, I just, I look at it as that constant, uh, whether it's the inspiration for something happening or whether it's inspired by something else. It's just all the, the flow of, of uh, how I've lived. I love it. It's so interesting how music can imprint on your memories, whether you're making it, participating in it, just consuming it, it takes you to a time and place, and you're never you you're not going to be able to shake that no matter what. It's it's there. It's there forever, and uh, not <laughs> just like your uh, your fantastic single. It's there forever, and so hey, forever. <laughs> and, and and I think there's so much power that we that music has for us and can mean to a great deal of people and it can unite and it can allow someone to work through difficult times or times of change or different when one's going through different seasons of their lives. It's helpful. It's always there. And to hear you talk about music being that constant throughout your life goes right along with that. Now you brought up a good point about, um, you know, being, having a musically inclined family. So I'd love for you to walk me through a little bit in greater detail about the background. You talked about your dad's band and your mom is an opera singer. If I heard that correctly, right? Grandmother. 
grandmother. That's right. So if you could walk us through what it was like growing up in a musical dynamic with everyone contributing in their own way, or your grandmother being an opera singer, your dad's band, what was that like for you growing up? You know, I guess everyone has their normal growing up scenario, right. you know, uh, so mine seemed completely normal to me, but I mean, I, uh, I basically was whisked away onto a tour um, when I, you know, just after I was born and I grew up, you know, watching my dad's band, which was a blue eyed soul band. They were called the Fabulous Entertainers. And at that point, you know, they would play a city for a couple of weeks or a month and then move on to the next city. And it was just every night they were playing. And what a cool way to, you know, kind of grow up and, and be introduced to music. These guys were just so much fun and so much energy, so much love for music. You know, my dad was the sax player in the band. And he was shimmying and shaking and walking the bar. I mean, this guy was, you know, he was having a blast. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, cut to when the band broke up, I was four or five years old. And so we moved to Florida. My grandmother was an opera singer. She was a coloratura soprano. And she was that stereotypical, you know, big woman, big personality, beautiful voice. And she would come over and play and sing these Italian arias mm. and, you know, classical music. And it was, it was crazy, you know, here, my dad is off rocking and rolling in this, you know, soul kind of rock band. My grandmother's singing opera. Uh, my mother had no musical inclination, which made everything probably work. <laughs> and sure. I just wanted to be a part of all of it, you know, mm. growing up, once we moved, you know, to a house and weren't on tour, I would come home from school and there would be a drummer set up in our living room with all these cables going into the bedroom and yeah. someone singing into my closet. So there was always something going on. And I just, I loved it. It was this constant uh, fun. And that's what, you know, music has always been for me is, is just a really fun outlet, no matter what the style, no matter what the setting, if it's at home, on tour, whatever. That's what it is. I love that. So your dad played the saxophone? He did. I totally copied. I figured, you know, fourth grade band came around uh, and our, you know, our band teacher, Ann Reynolds, just laid all the instruments out on the ground and just said, pick one and we'll learn how to play. Yeah. And so I walked around, looked at everything, and I chose the saxophone because my dad looked like he was having a blast every night on stage. Yeah. I wanted to have that much fun. And, uh, you know, thank goodness no one told me it was odd for a girl to play a saxophone until it was just <laughs> right. way too late. Right. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> That's so true, though. You see, I mean, even when watching you, when you're playing, it's hard not to get like it's just this infectious energy when someone's playing the saxophone and really wailing away on it. You're just drawn into it. And it's, Ooh, gives me chills every single time because it's just like, I don't know what it is. I can't describe it. Right. It's, it's indescribable, <laughs> but it's just something different for me when I'm just watching somebody and, and they're just wailing away on that saxophone. I'm like, man, they are, they've got a power about them that is infectious. And it just makes me want to want to be a part of it, whatever that is. And, so yeah, I love that. Definitely have that. It should be a part of you. And I've always thought of the saxophone in particular as uh, the instrument that is closest 
to the human voice. Mm. And it's always been an extension of me. I mean, the saxophone is that instrument that can whisper or you can scream on it. There's so much emotion and it's just kind of an extension of self. So I, I chose the right instrument. And so it's, it's everything for me to, you know, emote in different ways. I just, I love it. You know, that's a good point. I like that you bring up the closest to the human voice because they're so like, you can, you can hear, especially if, if someone is playing, I would say the saxophone and they're playing a cover and it's something that one is familiar with. You can hear the, the words and the lyrics with no actual words when one is playing the saxophone to your point, because it just, the, the, the going like, I, I'm not, I'm not musically inclined as much as I wish. So the jargon I'm not great with, but when it goes up and when it goes down and the different levels of the, the, the noises, it sounds like someone is singing and I can hear it even though I'm not hearing it, if that makes sense. It's like, you can, it makes total it. sense. Yeah. I mean, it, it really does work you know, with your breath and it's, right. you know, it's this, it's this sound that the, the timbre is really close to a voice. And I feel like whoever's playing it, you get to the soul of who they are. Mm. You know, you, you can play it with no emotion and it'll sound like a saxophone, right. but if you put yourself into it, if you talk into it, if you, you know, sing into it, it'll, it'll be an extension of you. And that's what it's always been for me. I love that. So you started picking up the saxophone, what you say in, in, uh, elementary school or was this, yeah. yeah, elementary school. Okay. So, and then you, you continued obviously because now we're talking about it, but, but what was it like <laughs> for you kind of taking that instrument and learning and developing as your, I think, so let me, let me frame it like this. So what was it like continuing to learn through school at playing the saxophone and then also how did your dad help with your learning and development as you're going through your schooling learning the saxophone well let me start with my dad because you know here I I've grown up in this musical family and right. you know watching my dad on stage every night and listening to him play uh my dad didn't teach me anything <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I came back after months of school band, you know, and learning how to play in school band. Right. And I just remember my saxophone wouldn't work one night. And I brought it to my dad and went, what's going on? I just can't get it to work. And, you know, he was like, well, did you clean out your mouthpiece? And I was like, what? <laughs> you have to clean out the mouthpiece? I mean, completely you know, yeah. something that no one ever told me, Sure. you know, I'm in fourth grade, I'm eight years old, <laughs> right. like throw me a bone. Yeah. You're a sax player. Yeah. So yeah. he really, you know, we, we've talked about it at length um, in our many years, you know, cause yeah. he's my biggest fan, but he really wanted me to find music and find whatever I wanted to do on my own. He really was, uh, that guy that didn't want to be the parent that pushed their kid into music. Right. And he was so cognizant of the fact that he was a musician. My grandmother was a singer, you know, and it could very well be like, well, we had all these dreams. So you're going to go make them come true for us. Right. That's and a good point. so he just really laid back 
And I would sit there and watch the bands that he would record or the bands that he would rehearse with or whatever he was doing. And he was completely open with that, wanted me to, you know, really absorb all of it and really was so supportive with everything. But both he and my grandmother would never teach me and they would never kind of get involved. Um, you know, I probably had, I had less than a handful of private lessons up until I was in college. And it was more that I was kind of seeking it out, finding it, playing along to records, right. you know, taking every class in school band. I was in symphonic band. I was in the jazz band. Yep. I was the drum major in the marching band. Yep. I was just, you know, and I was in the, the choir, you know, anything they'd let me do. I was just all over it. Let right. me play. Let me sing. <laughs> I I really, really have a lot of respect for the for the approach of, I am a musician, it's a musical family, while I may be personally excited that you're picking up the same instrument that I did and you're really interested, I'm not going to project onto you everything that I want to do. I'm letting you forge your own path and I'm here, but I'm not going to sculpt you in the way that uh, I want you to to be or to do or anything like that. I think it's it's really commendable because it's so easy, I think, to to say like, oh, this is great. I'm going to make you, I'm, you know, everything that I did wrong, you're not going to do. And I'm going to fast forward you to, to fame or stardom or whatever. And that's the, the dream, right? right? I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, honey, don't you want to play the saxophone? Here, go do this. Here, right. go, you know, let me show you this. Let me, right. you know, but I mean, that can, like you said, you know, uh, it's it's a really cool thing that they didn't do that looking back. Right. And it's a really cool thing that they, they let me find that love on my own yeah. and didn't, you know, uh, it's not that they didn't nurture what I was doing. They totally did. They were incredibly supportive and just at every concert and really, you know, what can we do to help and all of that, you know, but, uh, but to, I think to let your kid find it, what a beautiful gift. You know, they didn't tell me what to play. They didn't tell me what style to play. Yeah. Um, you know, and they just went along with it uh, and, and went along for the ride. And I think as a parent, that's super hard to do. Yeah. And I, I totally commend them for it. And um, but there were a couple points as a kid I was looking at. I'm like, but you play saxophone. You right. let me not clean the mouthpiece for months and didn't even, you know, right. tell me, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah. I love that. So let's fast forward a bit. Now you talked about college. So if, if I recall correctly, you start, you formed that first band in and around college or was it after college? When did that first formation happen for you? I had this incredible sax teacher at Berkeley college of music and he was like the Yoda of saxophone. <laughs> He's not with us anymore. His name is Joe Viola. And he wrote a bunch of books on the art of playing the saxophone. And uh, he was this guy. I'd walk in his room every week for my lesson. And one of the first things out of his mouth every week, have you started your own band? You should start your own band. You need to start your own band. And I mean, just constant prodding from Yoda. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I, I'm like, OK, what he really was getting at was I hadn't grown up like 
most people at Berklee College of Music. There were a bunch of people who, as saxophonists, had grown up with a lot of jazz and, you know, wanted to be the next Charlie Parker or the next John Coltrane or the next Michael Brecker or the next David Sanborn. I had come in from a a kind of different view. I didn't want to be Charlie Parker. Um, I wasn't into bebop. I wanted to play rock and roll and and funk and R&B and and sing pop. And uh, so I had these different influences on stage. I was looking at Tina Turner and Aerosmith and Bruce Springsteen, (laughs) you know, I didn't want to stand in a corner and, and play, uh, you know, uh, the, the jazz that most people in school wanted to. So he was like, figure out who you are, Mm. hone it, start your own band, be, you know, just get into it, live it, figure it out and start now because you know, that will give you these years of living in your own skin and figuring out what that sounds like, what that looks like, what that feels like. And it was the best advice ever uh, because you know, the, the one chance you have at success is being who you are, yeah. who you really are, not you know, trying to emulate someone else. We all learn from emulating you know, so-and-so's you know, vocal right. uh, you know, sound or so-and-so's saxophone sound or trying to play that lick like, you know, like Eric Clapton played it, whatever. Yeah. But you have to figure out who you are and hopefully run towards that um, to, to really, you know, become something special. And what a beautiful thing Joe Viola gave me by, you know, pushing me towards that when I didn't know Jack, you know, I was yeah. just like, Hey, I just want to play. Right. So what, what great advice. I love that. Well, you're listening to after the encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and we'll be right back after this. back to after the encore i'm your host joe shaw and now mindy i want to talk about you you were asked to start your band do or do not there is no try uh as you were talking about the yoda of all teachers um uh, yoda yeah <laughs> so so you get your band together and what do those early days look like for you and the group the early days of my band were were pretty fun because you know you're a student you don't have to make money this isn't uh, something that's, you know, commerce based. This is just, what do you want to play? Right. Uh, let's just figure it out. So I was writing music and bringing it to the guys. Uh, I was allowed to do my senior recital for my degree, uh, as a concert. Oh, that's and a awesome. lot of people, I know a lot of people, their senior recital, just for those people that aren't complete music geeks and had to do <laughs> one, a lot of people, you know, they've got to play, 
uh, a piece of music by someone. If you're a sax player, maybe you play a Cannonball Adderley song or right. a, you know, John Coltrane song with yeah. their solo. Right. Uh, you play some scales, you know. But I was allowed to do a concert of my band and just do whatever it was I wanted to do and make an artistic statement. So it was great. I did a few songs that I had written. Uh, I did a few songs of... Uh, some bands that I really loved, some artists I loved. I remember I did Round Midnight, which is a Thelonious Monk song. That's and, awesome. uh, you know, very uh, geeky jazz, beautiful, you know, chord changes, just this incredible uh, song on soprano sax. I loved it. I also loved a band called the Yellow Jackets at the time. And so I did a, a couple of songs from the Yellow Jackets. And uh, my keyboard player, Tommy Coster Jr., his father was in Santana. His father co-wrote the song Europa. Oh um, God. We didn't do Europa, but we did um, some of Tommy's tunes. And Tommy was, you know, just a great guy to have in my life. He actually followed me to Los Angeles because I begged him. I needed someone to play with. And so it was really the start of this family. And what I brought with me out of starting my own band and being in college in the first place was more at those relationships mm -hmm. and the people that I was making music with and kind of growing with musically. So we would learn from each other. We would bring in songs that we liked, whether we wrote them or whether someone else we thought was cool wrote them. Right. So it was it was really just a growing phase. And it was somewhere in between, um, you know, kind of pop and uh, some fusion at the time and and jazz as well. Yeah, because uh, I, I was just getting into jazz. I mean, being at Berkeley, I was kind of immersed in different styles of music. You know, I'm yeah. listening to like Guns N' Roses along with John Coltrane and Miles Davis and trying yeah. to buy every record Miles Davis ever recorded. Yeah. So it was a really odd time for Rocker Girl to, you know, kind of delve into the world of jazz and try and make sense of that in, <laughs> you know, in a young mind. Right. I love that. And this is the this is the was it early to mid 90 or early like 91 92 93 is this around the time period when this is occurring yeah i graduated in 91 so okay. this was you know late 80s early 90s yeah okay because i was thinking about the fact one of the things so i mean i grew up so i was born in 87 grew up with a ton of 90s like early 90s and mid 90s music and one of the things that always makes me feel nostalgic in a fantastic way is a an incredible jazz solo or I'm not a sax solo on a record. So I'm specifically thinking about yeah. like, I grew up with like a lot of Dave Matthews band, some Hootie and the Blowfish. I mean, these types of artists that have those type of sax moments in the song. And so I think, so I, the, where I'm going with this is you're talking about this kind of fusion of like rock and some pop and, and just kind of your own thing. I think we're musically in a time period where we were starting to embrace more of these kind of fusion ideas of like, ooh, let's experiment with what what kind of different sounds do we want in the music, you know, and we're we're trying to define what what the next sound is going to be. So I think it was one of those things where it was just serendipity of like, yeah, let's get this. This sound is perfect. It's being embraced. It's growing in relevancy. People want it. There's an appetite for it. Um, sure. 
and it's it's interesting and incredible. So how did you get from kind of those early days to your debut album was in 99, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what was that like from the from 91 to 99? Obviously, that's eight years, but if we could kind of see how that grew and did the band that you ended up, did that band stick together throughout that or was it a totally different band? It's interesting, you know, for, for various reasons, everyone kind of scattered, but Mm -hmm. some people stayed around. Like I said, Tommy Coster Jr. uh, Stuck around. Basically I, uh, I graduated and moved to Los Angeles because I had, I had gone, well, I had been called actually to, uh, to not rehearse, uh, to kind of uh, go in. <laughs> this is great. Barry Manilow needed a new band, right? <laughs> yeah. I had just graduated from college. And so I get this call from my friend, uh, Abraham Laboreal Jr., who I was in college with. He was right. a drummer who was in my first band. And he goes, so I just got called to put together the band of like the young cats from Berkeley that I think would make a great band. Um, And it's for Barry Manilow. And, you know, all of us were kind of a little edgier than maybe Barry Manilow would (laughs) have been cool with. Mm -hmm. But you know what? We were like, sure, let's go get a gig. Let's go get paid. This is great. And we all knew every Barry Manilow song. (laughs) I mean, um, so they flew me to L.A. from Boston, all of us, and we auditioned. And we did not get it. (laughs) We were not Barry Manilow's perfect band. I mean, Abraham at the time had his whole head shaved, except for a ponytail on the top of his head that that looked like a genie. Right. I had the sides of my head shaved, but the, you know, the rest of it was down to my butt. Right. Uh, The percussionist looked like Tarzan. I mean, completely the wrong people. We were all really good musicians right. in our own right. We were great. Uh, <laughs> but I saw LA and I, I saw what was going on there. And I saw all these bands rehearsing where we were auditioning. And I just, I wanted to be here. You know, I wanted, uh, I thought, okay, that's it. So I packed up everything. I drove everything I owned uh, in my little Honda and <laughs> moved to LA you know, basically got here and just realized, oh my God, they've got everyone they need here. The last thing they need is one more musician. Definitely no more sax players. They've got that covered. And, you know, it it was, it was kind of a rude awakening as a kid, just thinking, I'm going to go in and take over. This is going to be amazing. Right. Uh, So I started calling my friend, Tommy Coster, who played with me in my band and just said, you got to move here. Like, you got to come here and at least play with me. I'll get us gigs in coffee shops. Yeah. I don't know. I'll just, I will scour the papers. We will play somewhere. I will make sure you eat. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he actually took me up on it, <laughs> which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we did. We played on the street. We played at coffee shops. We played in malls. We played everywhere. And we were just great partners in crime. And he'd write songs and I'd write songs and he'd help find other members of the band and we'd go see other people and it, it really snowballed and I had more friends that moved. Uh, one of my other friends, Matthew Hager from Berkeley came and he ended up producing my first record, but I played in his band. He played in my band. So it really kind of 
snowballed and and was something that I just wanted to play. So I I made it happen. Um, you know, it it is what it is. You know, so those were the you know that that first year or so in Los Angeles, just yeah. trying to kind of make it. Right, definitely, and it's it's so interesting the different. So when I'm thinking about the diff the 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 difference in time, right? You've got the '90s versus now. We, here we are in 2021 recording, and very different time. And and talking to artists like Deza that's on this volume, and others that are new up and coming artists in LA, the approach that they have to creating music is very different. I mean, it's it's a it's very you know, song driven, individual song driven and they're out in LA and they're designing it in a lot of ways for the streaming market like how can we maximize this? Um and it's it's yeah. it's not how how do I want to frame this? It's not I think I think I've had conversations with people who have felt that is very disingenuous when we're, when one is creating art in that way. And I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's just a different mindset and approach of this is how my journey started. This is how yeah. I evolved. This is how their journey starting. And, and it's both genuine and very authentic and very different. And it's interesting to see the two different correlations because I'm I'm all about the albums and going to the record store and browsing and picking up the vinyls and dusting them off and listening to them and and comparing notes and CDs as opposed to like oh let's pull up a couple different songs on Spotify and just like you know roulette and see what what's going to pop up next I mean it's just very different ap approaches and so when you were creating that initial album in 1999 um what was that like for you? So you'd been in LA a little bit at that time, obviously. What was it like for you to actually put down that solo album or that first album? Well, let me. Uh, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna give you a little. Uh, you know, uh, kind of ramp up into sure. it. It's basically, you know, I think it's really interesting what you were saying about people's different approaches. Yeah. You know, and and how we all kind of come at it differently. For me, I was a player, but I, I was also a songwriter we didn't have the technology we have today. No one was on computers. Right. No one had recording equipment in their bedroom, right. uh, on their iPhone. Yep. It just didn't exist. And you weren't allowed kind of in the club unless you got signed to a record deal yeah. by a major label. Yep. There weren't even really indie labels at that point. I mean, you really had to kind of cash in and get a record deal to be in the mix. So, that's what I was going for. And I was playing everywhere, on the street, in little clubs, everywhere. And finally, someone hired me off the street, actually. Uh, a jazz artist named Bobby Lyle hired me, and I started touring the world with him. Wow. That snowballed into me playing with everyone else. So here I wanted to be a solo artist. I was just all about, you know, can I get a record deal? But being a woman playing a saxophone, I was told by every label, you know, we don't, we don't need another sax player, first of all. Right. Secondly, you sing and play the saxophone. We don't know what to do with that. So you have to choose, are you a sax player or are you a singer? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, we just don't know what to do with you. We don't know how to market a woman who plays a saxophone. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, uh, 
so I was just told no, no, no. So I start playing for everyone else. You know, I played for Tina Marie. I played for the Gap Band. I played for, you know, Lee Rittenauer, Bobby Lyle, Jonathan Butler, the Backstreet Boys, all these people. And I'm just going, going, going. And all of a sudden, Bud Harner uh, from Verve Records comes up and says, I want to make an instrumental record with you. Yeah. Now, go. that's in 2001. But in 1999, I'm on the road with the Backstreet Boys. Right. Like, no one's hired me to do a record. You know, I've been on the road with the Backstreet Boys, like seeing the world, getting crazy, playing to 60, 80,000 people a night. Right. And I just figured no one's given me a record deal. I've got to just do this on my own. Mm. And my friend from Berkeley College of Music, Matthew, he was like, I just got a four track recorder you want to do this? Oh, that's awesome. So I come off the road from the Backstreet Boys tour and go to his little sweaty, you know, uh, house in, <laughs> in Silver Lake <laughs> yeah. and record and then go back on the road with the Backstreet Boys. And it was really amazing to kind of do it, you know, ourselves. That was unheard of at that point for our circle of friends, at least. It just didn't, uh, didn't happen. So it was fun. I was writing all these pop songs. It was a vocal record. It was a pop record. You know, there were, there were uh, all these charts called mp3.com and we were all on the mp3.com charts. So it was, it was kind of like the wild west doing a record ourselves, but that was the beginning of me making records. And I didn't know that, you know, literally, uh, a year and a half later, I'd be offered a record deal as an instrumentalist. And that was a whole different kind of what? Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's <laughs> it crazy. Cool. It's, it's so crazy. You bring up, you, you bring that up though, because it's, uh, I think as this is, so as a society, I think we have, a we still, we've come a long way in some respects, but we still have a long way to go towards making a more inclusive world overall. And, so to that point, going back to the 90s, and you have a situation where you you see saxophone players as men typically in this bucket, right? In this one area, like we have you part of the band or you're someone like a John Coltrane, right? Like there's no kind of in between. Mm -hmm. And you didn't see, you didn't see women sax players at all. Um, yeah. And it wasn't, and so when you're in that period of time and you're in a world that is not, that's, that is not, uh, I would say not as inclusive as now, but then we've got our own issues now, but that's so, like, just throw that off to the side. But, um, but when you have that period of time and you have someone that's like, look, I don't know what to do with you. Um, if you want to sing, yeah. we can approach that. If you want to set the sax down, if you're going to do the sax, okay. But like, I don't need another sax player. So, so sorry. Like you're just too, you're too different. We don't know where to place you. We have our cookie cutter boxes for women artists and you don't fit in there. So we're not, we're not sure. I mean, that is so frustrating on so many levels. It was a, you know what, it was a really odd thing and uh, it is what it is, you know, this is the world that we live in and we're all judged on, on different basis, you know, whether yeah. it's 
I'm a woman and you want me to be a man or, you know, gay versus straight, black versus white. We're all judged, you know, from maybe what we're trying to do, what we're supposed to be for, right. for that particular job or adventure or whatever it is. But, you know, I think it's all in how we deal with it mm. and how we take those those challenges or maybe those those roadblocks that are put up for us. Uh, and I I really have taken it as kind of this this challenge to change people's minds about what they think a woman should be, what they think a woman should play, uh, how a woman should play. And I I remember this one night, my mother and father were in the audience as I was playing saxophone for, um, he's kind of a South African R&B artist named Jonathan Butler, very urban audience. And my parents, you know, were in the audience watching. I didn't come out until halfway through the first song. And uh, so as I walked out on stage with my saxophone, the woman sitting next to my mother stood up and she yelled, she's like, what is that skinny little white bitch doing on stage? And my mother, you know, sunk down in her seat. Right. And, uh, you know, I didn't didn't hear her. Right. Uh, But I'm just playing, I'm doing my thing. And we finally finished the song together. And the woman stood back up and she screamed again. And she was like, you go, you skinny little white bitch, you can play. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that goes to show that, yes, there were some misconceptions going in and people still have them. They'll always have different misconceptions for, you know, whatever it is. But I I think it is up to us to to change things. And I I feel like... uh, it's part of my job and, and I like my job. I'm not, I'm not mad at it. I get sure. that people have their, their, uh, you know, kind of conceived notions of, right. of what it all can be, but hopefully they walk away from my concerts with, uh, with different notions. <laughs> right. right. No, a hundred percent. And I know that you've had an incredible career and we don't have time to get into everything, but I do want to spend a moment and talk about what it was like for you when you released Life Less Ordinary. Cause I, as I understand it, it was number one on the contemporary, uh, the contemporary jazz chart. So I, I believe that was the first one that peaked at number one. Um, and so, you know, I think it's so interesting to me to hear the, the the mindset that goes into when you've got a record that then peaks right up there at number one in any chart, right? But but and yeah. then you've had some Grammy nominated um, works as well, most recently in the last couple of years. But what was it like to have that that first like now you're at number one, like you're right there, you're at the top of the charts. What was that moment like for you and some memories of that record specifically? You know, the, the whole journey was kind of surreal because yeah. I that was my um, third record for Verve Records. Right. And the first record, It Just Happens That Way, came out and I didn't think, you know, I just thought we're making a record. This is great. Uh, and we started touring and we started doing our thing. Just the kind of machine started rolling. And a couple songs from that record went number one uh, and stayed number one. And it really... It just opened up the world to me. Sure. Come As You Are, the second record, just came immediately after that. Like, we kept rolling. I went on the uh, on tour with Josh Groban, opening up for him. That's right. And, and all of a sudden, we had this identity as a band. Like, we were a live band. We were just totally putting it together. We had our show. It was great. 
And then Life Less Ordinary, I felt like I felt like I had come into my own. I felt like, wow, we're making this record. And I actually wrote according to our live show. I was like, I want to write a song that is going to be that anthem in our live show that people are going to be like holding their lighters up in the yeah. air. And, you know, that's what I want people to do at my shows. And I wrote Bloom, which is on Life Less Ordinary, with that in mind, because we were such a live band at the time. And when that record went number one, I just, I was so, you know, just stunned and elated. And it was all very surreal because we had just been on the road doing our thing, having fun, being a band. And, you know, it, it just morphed and changed. And here we were at number one and it, it just felt awesome. It yeah. felt so cool. So, you know, you always want to go number one. You always want to take over the world, but that's hard. There's a lot of super talented people in this world. Right. <laughs> right. So to be at number one is just, you know, that's the best thing in the world. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Well, you're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. I'm here with Mindy A. Bear. And no, we're not here forever. We're just here for tonight. Uh, <laughs> I always got to do one song pun in there. Um, I love that. You've got the forever pun going now. I love it. it. Works for me. I want to spend some time focusing on what it meant to you to have your Grammy nominations. So we've talked about what an incredible start to your career, how, how folks didn't know what, you know, I'm using air quotes, what to do with you. Um, and, and now your career has taken you to be able to be called a Grammy nominated artist. So what, what was it like? I know that there's a lot of years in there that we, I wish we had time to do even more, but, but what was it like for you to put together a body of work that is recognized from the the academy so that you can be called a grammy nominated artist what was that what's that like for you and what's your perspective on that i mean first of all i've watched the grammys since i was a kid and you know that is the end all be all award right. it's from your peers it's everyone who makes music who creates music who votes for it so you want that and i've always you know, strived to make records that are Grammy worthy. You know, I've always pushed myself to, to just make the best, you know, music that you possibly can and just, you know, go for it. Uh, but it's interesting. The record that got me my first Grammy nomination is called Wild Heart. Mm -hmm. And it was right before that record that I, I was kind of stuck. I had made, I believe six or seven records 
And I had kind of said it all and I was kind of bored with myself. I mean, really honestly, like, okay, well, I don't, I I just want to, I want to put all of me out there and I don't know what that is right now. And so I just started doing things that inspired me. I was just like, go do stuff that, that you love. And it's going to, it's going to appear. So I ended up playing in Wadi Wachtel's rock band on Monday nights at the joint here in Los Angeles. And I ended up saying yes to American Idol and going on and and playing with so many amazing, you know, up and coming artists on American Idol. That led me to tour with Aerosmith because Steven Tyler was like, hey, forget you. Who's your sax player? Let's go on tour. You know, so, you know, you can't say no to that. I come off the Aerosmith tour and, um, you know, I'm standing on stage with Aerosmith uh, just thinking to myself this is what I grew up on. I'm in front of 14 guitar amps and there's some Zen to me with loud guitars and, and, you know, someone screaming and yelling and running around the stage and having fun and just giving everything. And here I am, I'm playing with all these different people. I did a night with Springsteen after Clarence Clemens passed away. And I just took all that, mojo from playing with those guys and said that's it i play with all these guys i make music with all these guys on my off time this is such a love of mine yet it's so separate from my career why is that there's no reason for it so i started asking my friends and people i'd worked with will you help me make a record that is me that's all me you know these records were a part of me they're all a snapshot of where i was in my life, but I really haven't showed this side of me at all to my public as, as an artist. And I think that's wrong. I think I should. So sure enough, I made wild heart and Joe Perry from Aerosmith came in and played Booker T Jones, uh, came in and played and wrote with me, Greg Allman. I went to his house for three days and wrote a song and recorded it with him. Um, Wadi Wachtel. Max Weinberg from Springsteen's band, Kev Mo, and you know, all these guys, they helped me, you know, and they were just like, let's do you and, and we'll be a part of it. And what a beautiful thing, you know, yeah. to, to kind of lean on people that you love, that you've been a part of their career, right. but they came into my career and, and uh, it was fun to call Joe Perry and be like, Hey, look, I know you've won every award, but you just got nominated in the best contemporary instrumental category for Wild Heart. <laughs> so, you know, that was a that was a fun phone call to make. <laughs> yeah. I love that. It's so it's so it's so true that even if you've had a successful career and even if things are going so well and you're having success and you're just you're at a level that you may have never thought you'd be at as an individual to still feel I feel like I've got more to give and and I need to tap into who is who I am at my core and and not just who I am right now but who I am in every situation, in every moment, what is my authentic self? I want to tap into that and share it with the world. And 
to be able to do that and then have these people come in and say, we 100% support you. We are here for you. Let's make this banger and let's get it out in the world. And to have other people recognize it is incredible. Now, that was such a cool thing because, you know, I, I made this record and I, you know, I just thought, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what are people going to think about this? You know, opening the record with Trombo and Shorty, like, you know, oh, rocking out and having fun. So good. I love Trombo and, and Shorty. Oh, oh, I know. He's just, he's just this, this powerhouse. Yes. And I'm thinking, well, look, contemporary jazz radio has embraced me like crazy. And they, you know, they've played my songs. I've had number one records, but will they embrace this? Cause you know, it had more blues and it was, it was more soulful. It was more organic, um, definitely more angst in it, you know, and um, they did embrace it. And the, the critics were awesome. They, you know, they, they could have just laid me out and been like, what the hell is this? You know, but they, they loved it. And so, you know, what a beautiful thing to take a chance yep. and make music that moves you. And, you know, I needed to stay inspired and that record, you know, inspired me like crazy. And it was me through and through. So what a beautiful thing to really try and show you and, and all of you and, and get rewarded for it. Right. It's awesome. Absolutely. And, you know, you've, you've had some, you talked about being on, pivoting a little bit, you talked about being on American Idol and you talked about there's, they're playing with Paul Schaefer as well, which is incredible. And I, we were talking off, off air and I was just remarking on how I saw th there's a, there's a clip of you online of you playing with the roots on the Jimmy Fallon show and you're just rocking out and just absolutely wailing away and to be playing with the roots like I gotta like spend some time like what was it like to play with the roots like roots like holy shit like, right like oh yeah the roots are just crazy I mean those guys are beasts yeah. they're amazing you know and and just to show how amazing they are I walked in with you know like six songs or something they learned those six songs in like six minutes oh man <laughs> and we were in a room that is smaller than most people's bathrooms i mean we were just all you know right next to each other just kind of playing instruments on you know you know quest was you know playing drums on the walls and doing all kinds of stuff and i mean we went out there and you know we all record our songs and and do our things and spend all this time getting them perfect in the studio man those guys laid wild heart out the the title track to wild yep. heart like they wrote it right and I, I was you know i was just i was a kid in a candy store i felt like the coolest most lucky person on the planet to yeah. be standing there in the middle of the roots uh you know so yeah. Yeah, I can't say enough about those guys and how ridiculously talented they are and how much they made my year. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's absolutely incredible. Now, you've also gotten some blues awards uh, for your record in 2018 as well. So I loved uh, pretty, pretty, was pretty good for a girl the name of the record or the name of the track? Pretty good for a girl is the name of a song. That's right. And, uh, yeah, and th then it became the name of my record label. 
Okay. So uh, gotcha. couldn't think of a better title than pretty good for a girl records. <laughs> I love that. So let's spend some time. What was it like for you to put that, that track together, but really that entire blues record in 2018, where you got several awards for that, for your work on that. And then also to create that record label as well. Let's take those kind of two pieces. You know, that record was really born out of Wild Heart. Wild mm -hmm. Heart, that album, was like the gateway drug to the next five years. <laughs> and, you know, right. it pretty much opened up my world. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go with this. And my friend Mandy Jacobs had a band called The Bone Shakers uh, that had started out of Bonnie Raitt's band. And it was this just powerhouse blues rock band. And... Randy and I basically had the same band at a certain point. My guys were playing in his band and he was playing in my band. So I went and sat in with them one night. And really the only member that, that wasn't a member of my band was Sweet Pete Atkinson, who's this ridiculous singer who sang with Bonnie Raitt and was not was. Um, and it was just magic. It was just, it was really, really electric. And again, you have to go for inspiration it inspired me. It inspired all of us. We all sat down and went, why don't we start a band? Like, I won't be a solo artist. I won't be just Mindy Bear. We'll be Mindy Bear and the Bone Shakers. And we'll all have a say in the music. And I hadn't done that before. I've been a part of amazing bands, Duran Duran or Backstreet Boys or, you know, um, uh, Aerosmith, but that was as a side person. Sure. I had never myself been a band member of something like this. So, boy, we had the time of our lives making music. And I brought the song "Pretty Good to uh, Pretty Good for a Girl" to the guys, and it was just this tongue-in-cheek look at being a woman. Yeah, you playing a saxophone, and and just my journey that you and I have talked about tonight. And uh, boy, we they just created this. Uh, this fun, you know, rockin' anthem. And then Joe Bonamassa came in for the recording and recorded it with us, which just took it up another notch. So it, it became this anthem for us. And I still play it every night. It's just such a fun song. And it was, uh, you know, it was right after Wild Heart that I really thought, you know, I need to make my own records. I need to own this. I need to own the music I make. I realized that I wasn't, you know, owning what I was doing and as artists you know that's a whole nother conversation um but that was important to me so i i put it out on my own record label pretty good for a girl records and uh i've done that ever since so i've had my own label and you know you get to control what you do right. so pretty good for a girl came out on pretty good for a girl <laughs> <laughs> i love that and it, it really it really does bring everything full circle in that regard in that <clears throat> you know it is a tongue-in-cheek look at at everybody that, you know, as we talked about the, towards the beginning of going, well, I don't really know what to do with you. You're you're a woman. You're a, a woman saxophone player. Like, uh, what do we as an industry or a label do with you? And be like, well, you reward it is what you do because it's fucking <laughs> badass. And once you listen to it, you recognize it. And then you go create your own label. <laughs> that just takes, you know, a little, yeah. little, little, little jab at it. Just, just enough to, to let you know, like, hey, we're here. We're doing it. And yeah. I'm just going to remind you that I'm incredible. And this is what we're doing. <laughs> you know, enough people had come up after shows so well-intentioned, you know, and would oh shake my, my hand and just say to me, oh, my God. You are pretty good for a girl. Oh, oh my God. God. You, you know, 
And even I toured with Adam Sandler early on. Um, he did a music tour many years ago yeah. and people would come up, you know, after the shows and be like, that was so funny that you had the blonde pretending to play sax. Oh, I mean, it really sounded like, like she was playing sax. And finally Adam was like, Oh my God, we've got to put it on your credits. You know, we did an HBO special for him. Got to put it in your credit. No, she's really playing the saxophone. <laughs> But, you know, it, it was it's just been a lot of history of people coming up with, you know, wow, you're pretty good for I mean, for a girl. <laughs> so, you, you know what? You got to have fun with that at a certain point. You do, fun. <laughs> you do because you've got to you've got to, you know, you've got to uh, uh, point out the the while well-intentioned, the inappropriateness of, of the comments so folks can go, you yeah. know what? That was not accurate. That was inappropriate. Super sorry. I recognize what I did there. Let me correct. Let me be a better person. Let me use this as a learning moment and and move forward. But yeah, no, it's just, that's crazy. Well, now people come, you know, all clad and they're pretty good for a girl t-shirts and everything to my shows. So it's, Which it's is become awesome. a, a symbol of power now of instead of weakness. It's awesome. I love that. I Like yeah. that is beautiful and fantastic. I, yeah, wa- I sure. want I want to talk about you know 2020 was a uh, unprecedented year um, in a lot of respects and you know when you have a moment where artists aren't touring and aren't able to go out um, like you've been able to do forever um, I think you saw a lot of innovation a lot of um, folks trying to pivot and go well what what should we do now and so um, I'd love to talk about like, what was your approach um, to recognizing like, well, we're not going out and touring uh, anymore. So I got to figure out something new and different. So what, what was your approach to 2020? And then how does that carry over into your approach to music and any other ventures in 2021? It's interesting. Uh, 2020 started with just it was going to be a crazy year for us. Sure. We started off on the road and we did a bunch of cities and then took a week off to record in Los Angeles. And going back to my very first band, Abraham Laborial Jr. played drums (laughs) on this record in 2020. Everything is full circle. There we go. (laughs) Talk about like using the guys that are your family, you know? So we got together and recorded an album and it was just as the world shut down, you know, all of us came into it knowing something was going on. But after the week in the studio, we, we were looking at each other going, okay, I I don't know when I'll see you next. You know, Abraham tours with Paul McCartney. Paul had just canceled his tour. Um, I was getting all these calls. uh, uh, This date is canceled. This date is canceled. And we were all just kind of, whoa. So I went home. We had this record you know, almost done. I hadn't done a couple of my vocal tracks because I had a cold and I went home and figured out how to record into my closet (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, I couldn't be in a studio. Everything was shut down. So I got out my microphone. I learned, I, you know, downloaded all these programs. I'm like, I'm going to figure this out. And then I just realized that our whole year well, I, we didn't think it was going to be the whole year, but our whole summer, what we thought was canceled. Mm. And I just thought, I, I can't have this happen. 
Like I, I just have to stay connected. I'm such a social animal. So I started playing on my porch and in my living room and I would do Tuesday night Facebook lives and we've done 32 of them now. And so every week, Tuesday night, 5 PM Pacific time, I am on my porch and I'm, you know, at first it was just me. So it was me and my piano or my saxophone and just doing my thing. Uh, but lately, uh, I've had one person over to the porch and it's, you know, been everyone from Ellis Hall from Tower of Power to Peter White or Rick Braun or Bird the Bailiff from Judge Judy. Um, I think Sean Amos is going to come over, the oh, Reverend. Yes. Um, so, you know, it's just about having friends over and making music in a safe place. We're on the porch, we're socially distanced, we're outside, um, but still making music. And it's been the most amazing thing to connect with my fans and, and people who maybe weren't my fans last year, but, but are this year and just uh, have time with people and, and yeah. feel their presence because I've missed that so much. So it's kept me sane. Um, and it, it's been a very different year of kind of creating and being and and uh, and finding people in this very different way and relating to them in this very different way. But it's it's a very close relationship. And I really feel like it is going to continue into the rest of my career, because now we've formed these bonds with each other that, uh, you know, are in a very different uh, kind of realm than we have the rest of our careers right. i think a lot of people are going to bring this into our coming careers exactly you know and i've caught several of those live streams as well and one of the things that i've always loved about music is is the feeling of like you're at someone's house or you're walking by or you it's just like I know, like this house concert vibe and yeah. i just it feels like a very, very communal and very mm -hmm. spiritual and very um, grounded, like all three of those things. And I love it. And so one of the things I really love is when you have the different artists and you're both on the porch and you're both just jamming out and just playing these songs. And it's just, it feels good for the soul. Like, I feel like I'm there, even though I'm yeah. all the way over here in Texas watching through my computer or my phone or what have you. I love it. Yeah, it's been, it's been such an experience to do this. And I, it's, uh, it's kept me happy. You know, not only does it let me know it's Tuesday, right. uh, because, you know, so many of us just lose, uh, what week <laughs> is it? What day is it? Right. It, you know, it gives me purpose, you know, oh yeah. my God, I'm going to put on makeup. And I'm going to go out to the porch and play. Right. I've got a reason to do, <laughs> and, uh, do something. <laughs> yeah. And Dave Cause is coming over and we're going to make some music. And this that is was really purpose, good. You know? Oh, I love that one. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's like Casey Abrams is coming over. We're going to get crazy. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's really fun as a musician. Um, you know, I, I think we can kind of lose our purpose if mm. we have nowhere to play. Uh, and no one to play for, yeah. you know, it's one thing making money and paying the rent. And, you know, that's a, a really, really sad thing of this year to watch so many musicians uh, that are so talented and there's 
no way for them to make a dollar, right. you know, doing what they really do. And all these venues that, you know, have been there for, for, you know, years and years and years that we've played that, that can't make it through something like this. Yeah. So our arts are really, really suffering. So it's really hard to watch that. So it, it's good for my soul to be able to bring someone over to my house, make music, feel like we're doing what we do and connecting with those people that I usually see at concerts and hug and, you know, whatever. I get to keep up with them now, you know, on screen and saying hi to them and figuring out what wine they're drinking that night. And, right. you know, let's drink, let's play, let's talk, you know, yeah. this is going on in the world. Oh my God. So I feel like yeah. I've lived through this year uh, with, you know, my fans and friends and, and those people that, Maybe we're just fans, uh, became friends through the year. (laughs) I love it. Well, I've got two last questions as we're wrapping up here. The first one is if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way to do it is join my email list. So if you go to mindyather.com, just join the email list and we'll send you stuff once a month and tell you what's going on and and show you the latest stuff. You know, I've got a wine and music company, so you'll, you'll find out that we go on adventures and, you know, have the coolest wine that's music centric and all of that stuff. Um, Probably the second best way is to follow me on Facebook because you get all the reminders that we're going live and uh, you know, we do cooking shows here and uh, have fun in the kitchen. Not that we're better cooks than anyone out there, but we do have fun. And I'm playing saxophone in the kitchen and, you know, just, yep. it's good. It's good fun. Um, then, you know, we do our Tuesday night shows. So uh, it's, I, I've got some really cool people lined up for that this year that are everyone from rock stars to jazz stars to whatever. So um, those are the best ways. Instagram, of course, at Mindy A. Bear. Um, Facebook is at Mindy A. Bear. Twitter is at Mindy A. Bear. But, uh, but yeah, just follow. I follow you. Yes, that's right. And I follow you as well. And last question is if there is somebody who is looking to uh, break into the music industry or possibly evolve their status in the industry, what is one piece of advice or one mantra that you have for yourself that you would like to impart on those listening? You know, I I come at this, you know, obviously we're doing a a women's, uh, you know, kind of series. Right. and, and that speaks to me. And, and as a young girl, I remember I wanted to be in the, the Florida Allstate Jazz Band. I thought that was super cool. You know, I'm like 17 years old thinking, ooh, I want to be in that. You had to audition. And uh, I just remember thinking at a certain point I was practicing for the audition. And I just remember thinking, wait, there's a million guys out there in the state of Florida who can like you know, chew me up and spit me out as a saxophone player. And I don't really have a chance in hell at this. Um, And my father came in and I, you know, he's like, why aren't you playing? You know, you were practicing. And I, I told him, you know, I was like, I really have no chance at this. I'm just not, you know, I'm not going to go for it. And he talked me into going for it. And to make a long story short, I got it. I got the, the first chair alto sax you know, in the Florida All-State Jazz Band. And as a 17-year-old, that was like the prize. Right. And I ran into him and just said, Dad, I got it. Oh, my God. And he told me a piece of advice that I pass on to to you. Um, 
sometimes it's not the most talented people who get what they want, but it's the people who go for it. Mm. And if you go for what you want, then you have a chance at succeeding at it. But me as, you know, a, a kid, I would get psyched out and just think, oh, well, there's people that are better than me or there's people that, you know, maybe were born into that or they're supposed to get it, not me for whatever reason. Um, then that's not the case, right. you know, and sometimes you don't go for it because you you have these feelings, you know, of inadequacy for whatever reason. And you, you got to you got to stop that. Exactly. So, look, I haven't gotten everything I've wanted uh, by a long shot, but I've sure gotten a lot more than I, you know, than I would have if I would have just sat home and not believed in myself. So I, I think that's the best piece of advice I would give to to you as a listener. Just you believe in something, you want something, you want to be something, put yourself out there on the line and, and go get it. Love it. Well, Mindy, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been absolutely fantastic. I love this. This is great. <laughs> I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And uh, yeah, it's been fun to remember all this stuff and <laughs> dig up all these cool memories. So uh, this is great. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Well, uh, th- huh, I'm just, this has been so good. I'm even at a loss for words. So I will say this, that you're <laughs> listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. And here to play us out one last time is Mindy A. Bear.
This podcast is powered by Roberts Media Group, your resource for podcast development. For more programming and advertising opportunities, please visit us at robertsmediagroup.co.